So this being a metta retreat, we've talked a lot about metta. And last night, James gave that beautiful talk on mudita, on joy. Tonight, I want to talk about the other two Brahma-viharas, compassion and equanimity. And they're a little more sober, but I hope that I can convey a little bit of the beauty of them and actually have some sense of their happiness, their joy. Because as the Buddha said, equanimity is one of the highest forms of happiness. And compassion, of course, is that beautiful state of mind and heart of connection. And there really is this beautiful progression in the Brahma-viharas, beginning with this just simple sense of well-wishing, of kindness, that's innate in all of us. It just, ready, they're ready to be cultivated, ready to be available very natural process. And then it's natural when that warm, kind heart notices suffering, as it will, very quickly in ourselves or in others, those we care for, neutral or difficult person, all beings, the compassion arises. It's the natural response of the connected heart. Compassion arises, the proximate cause is suffering. And so there can be a little bit of a heaviness to that. So it's balanced by mudita, by joy. brings that uplift that allows us to go again to the suffering, to turn again to what's difficult. And then equanimity follows that as this beautiful state of mind and heart of balance and acceptance. And that equanimity is what allows all of the others to flow and open. It needs to be there all the time to, so that we don't go into the near and far enemies of the other Brahma-viharas that we've spoken about. So it's this beautiful map of the heart. I'm reminded of this story of this Korean Zen master, quite an awakened being, who was asked by someone who was a little cynical, kind of, so what's the result of all your years of practice? What, what's it done for you? And he thought for a moment, and you might think he'd want to come out with something kind of impressive, but he said, an appropriate response. (laughs) Just that. Doesn't seem very much, but when you think about the power of that, and that that's what the Brahma-viharas are, they're an appropriate response to any situation we might find ourselves in. If we could just find ourselves landing again and again, in one of the Brahma-viharas, as we go through our lives, we'd be doing pretty well. So we're hoping that in this week of practice, we're giving you a taste of that possibility. So as I said, this natural warmth, this human kindness, metta that we've been cultivating, when it connects with suffering, the immediate response is compassion. Of course, the definition of compassion is to feel with, compassion. It really means being ready to stand with someone in their situation with them. In the formal practice, the traditional line is just to offer, may you be free of suffering. But recognizing the challenge of that statement and and the inevitability of suffering can be really skillful to use some other phrases. And you've probably been working with some of the ones that have been offered, like, May you open to your suffering with compassion, or may you hold your suffering 
with compassion or I care about your pain and sorrow. Anything that will let us turn and be with that experience or our experience, just as it is in its difficulty. I love the, the, the literal translation of this word karuna. It means the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And you get a sense from that how physical compassion is. Actually, all the Brahma Viharas, I'm sure you've experienced, are very physical. You can actually feel something happening as they develop and express themselves within you. One other, one other translation I, lo- I liked was called resonating concern. Just that sense of, you know, resonate when something moves with something else. So it's a real soft spot, a tenderness, an openness. But it's actually a very bittersweet kind of practice. When I first started doing it, and perhaps you had this experience yourself, it felt a little weird to be using someone else's suffering to evoke what was actually, in its purest form, a very beautiful feeling. And I had to kind of work with that a little, you know, to keep going back to someone's suffering and then be in the beauty of the compassion that had this sublime nature to it. But what a gift it is we can give if we can develop that capacity to really be ready, willing, and able to share with someone their suffering, to not shy away from it, push it away, or negotiate it in some way. It really is quite a beautiful gift. A few years ago, one of my Tibetan teachers, Soni Rinpoche, visited us at our house. We live in Woodacre, and we have a house on a hill where you can see the sunset, and he was standing outside admiring the view, and like all good teachers, he gave us a teaching. And he said, the sunset is a beautiful time of day. It's like the practice of compassion. It's got that bittersweetness to it, the beauty of the sunset and the sadness at the ending. And so he said, practice watching the sunset, the great practice, but with that openness of heart of just really feeling that, that, that movement between the two, the bittersweet nature of it. He actually also said, practice watching the sunset with a glass of wine, but I'm not <laughs> saying that that's what you should have to do. He's Tibetan, and he didn't mean, you know, drink to excess, but just the way sometimes a little alcohol just softens the vibes, and you can really take something in. That was his instruction. Sometimes we follow it. So it's this natural response of the heart in response to suffering staying steady, staying open, ready to help, available. And it's, compassion is a source of so much goodness in the world. Uh, Stuart Brand, no, no, sorry, Stephen, I got the name wrong, I didn't change it. Stephen Hawking's? Paul Hawking's. Paul Hawking's wrote this book recently, Blessed Unrest. And it's basically his investigation, his uh, uh, into all of the millions, and I think it's literally millions, of nonprofit organizations, NGOs that are out there in the world doing good in all of these different arenas of life. And he just goes to a, a bunch of them and talks about what they're doing and then lists them. I don't think he can list them all. But he literally said there are millions. And we don't hear about that in the news so much. We hear what's going wrong. We don't hear about all of the efforts that people are making to ease suffering. And they're doing it out of this goodness 
of their heart, this feeling of connection and empathy. As Pema Chodron says, true compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but realizing our kinship with all beings. This true sense of connection and of care. And we've all been touched, of course, by suffering, but also by compassion, whether it's just, I'm sure this week, giving it to yourself, giving it to others. But we all know how beautiful that is when someone touches us with compassion, cares and empathizes. Not this year, but last year on the month-long retreat that we teach here, there was a yogi whose uh, yogi job was late night in the kitchen. She would do it alone. I don't know what she was doing, cleaning the stove or something. And she told us later that usually at night there was another yogi in there making himself some kind of drink, some kind of supplement health drink. And so she wondered, you know, why and what was going on, because it was a little unusual. And towards the end of the retreat, she found out that his kidneys were failing and that he was on the list for dialysis. I mean, not dialysis, for um, trans- <laughs> transplant. I was going to say trans- yeah, transplant. Um, and you know how long that list takes. And he was getting ill the way you do. He was really suffering from this. And so this really impacted her. When she got home from the retreat, she discussed it with her husband, and she decided to offer this man a kidney. She'd barely spoken to him. You know, he'd been a yogi on a silent retreat. They'd had that little conversation. And my husband was actually the go-between of connecting them and following through. And about six months ago, she went through with it, and she gave this man her kidney. This is a real gesture of compassion, of selflessness. She's not alone, of course. I actually have another friend who was a cook here and a caretaker. He gave his sister his kidney and then went on to donate to strangers his bone marrow, which is really a painful thing to do. Just out of this sense of connection, of feeling the blessings in one's own life and wanting to offer it to others. So it's amazing what compassion can do the openness and the willingness to be there with someone else in their situation. The near enemy of compassion is pity or grief. And pity separates us from the person. It says, oh yes, you're suffering, poor you. And the subtext is, and I'm glad it's not me. Or, you know, how can I get rid of this or fix this so I don't have to feel it? separates in some way, whereas compassion brings us together. We're really willing to be there with this person. As Stephen Levine says, when your fear touches someone's pain, it becomes pity. When your love touches someone's pain, it becomes compassion. We can really feel this in ourselves. And when I did intensive compassion practice, just like all the Brahma Viharas, I've done a week at one time and a month at another time of intensive compassion practice, really get to be there with that movement when I could be in compassion, with compassion, feeling with someone else their suffering. And then that easy movement into fear or grief or pity, or especially wanting to fix it, wanting it to go away. And of course, there's the wanting to help, which is essential. 
But in doing the practice, obviously, there's nothing I can do, but the mind would move into, you know, what can I do? How can I make this better? And it wasn't out of true compassion. It was out of not wanting to keep, having to keep feel it myself. So really helpful for me in doing that practice to feel that. But of course, grief is not a bad or wrong in itself. It's, some, it's a necessary part of the process of letting go of some deep loss that we have, whether it's a death of a loved one, something to do with ourselves, our health, the relationship, you know, any loss that we might have. It's a natural process, so it's not to say we shouldn't feel it. I can remember a number of years ago, um, a few of us went to the opening of Amaravati. It's a big monastery in England, their new meditation hall. So it was a big Buddhist celebration. And they had a ton of people come from Thailand. It was in England uh, for this celebration. And one of the people that came was Ajahn Panyananda, who was actually my husband Guy Armstrong's preceptor when he ordained as a monk in Thailand in in the 80s. And so he had a strong connection with this man, and he was very wise and sweet. He must have been in his 80s at the time. So a bunch of us were sitting with him as he was giving some teachings and talking. And he started talking about the fact that a friend of his had just died. It was a fellow monk. They'd been monks since their teens, probably, together. So this man was also in his 80s. So the end of a long life, a life of wisdom, a life of letting go, same for Ajahn Panyananda, as he talked about this death, he cried. And he was just, he wasn't overwhelmed with grief, but you could feel the sadness, the appropriate response of caring about the loss. Where grief gets challenging, or where, when it's really difficult, is when we don't accept the loss. I know for myself, when my mother died, now it's about 10 years ago, when it first happened, every time my mind would turn to it, the immediate response was this contraction of no. No, I don't want it to be so. No, it isn't so. It shouldn't be so. Why is it so? And each time it was like a knife. And it was only with time, gradually coming to accept the truth, that that lessened and I was able to still feel the sadness and the loss, but actually really open to those feelings instead of that contraction of resistance. And I've seen in, in others that I've talked to that when, you get, when one gets stuck in grief, when grief goes on longer than perhaps, and no one can say what that is, not trying to have any concept of that, but there can be times when it does just seem to be lasting longer, and there seem that on some level some readiness to let go, but it's because we don't on some level, let go or accept the loss. Really needing to to look at that, to have some (coughs) equanimity or wisdom around it. And the far enemy, of course, is cruelty, is actually enjoying someone else's suffering. Now, this is a quality I'm sure most of us would say, no, no, not me, I'm not like that. But James spoke about it a little last night, that there can be this more subtle sense of enjoyment of someone else's misfortune. We, we, we uh, perpetuate it through gossip. And it's kind of, oh, we're just talking about it, but someone's difficulty, someone's misfortune, but that little bit of charge to it. The Germans actually have a whole word for this, schadenfreude, shadow friend, because they see it's, it, it's, it's part of the human psyche. It, we, we can all indulge in this a little. And really to recognize that 
when it's happening. This can come up for us when we open to the difficult person. It can be really hard to wish them well. We feel it's not right. That if justice prevailed, they would be suffering in some way or another. (laughs) They'd get theirs, whatever it is. So it's a whole practice to recognize that, especially working with the difficult person, doesn't mean you have to like them, doesn't mean you have to hang out with them. It certainly doesn't mean you have to approve of what they do or have done. It just means you recognize their humanity and that they, like you, don't want to suffer. And that whatever actions that they've done that have harmed you or others were somehow or another coming out of their wish to find happiness or safety. This is a challenging reflection to take up, but it's really helpful to do that. And so as we purify in this practice of compassion, we have to look at those places of contraction or resentment. Really bring this understanding. See whoever we're working with as also the product of the conditions of their life, often doing the best they can with what they have, and also be willing to feel the pain of this pushing away or this enmity, this, this cruelty, because sometimes there's some energy that comes from it, but underneath there's challenge, there's difficulty. And also to remember the times that you perhaps have acted out of that, consciously or unconsciously, and what that felt like, what the repercussions were. Really not to judge or blame, but just to learn, to really give ourselves a motivation to learn from this. And so we practice compassion again, compassion for ourselves, compassion for the other. Because compassion is the proximate cause for suffering. It is the necessary condition And as we open to it, as we're willing to see the truth of this, that having a human mind and body, being in this existence, of course, on the human realm, on the animal realm, this is what happens. There is suffering. But this is not a morose kind of reflection. We all know the power of opening to the truth of things. And in that, something lets go. Something opens up. And true wisdom can start to manifest. We can act more appropriately with more skill and care. As Ajahn Chah says, he's a a Thai forest meditation master, died now a number of years ago. Outside of the Dharma, there isn't anything that will bring peace and happiness to this world. Outside of Dharma, there is only the struggle of winning and losing envy and ill will. One who enters the Dharma lets go of these things and spreads loving kindness and compassion instead. Even a little bit of such Dharma is of great benefit. Whenever an individual has such qualities in the heart, the Buddha's way is flourishing. So that's what we're doing here, helping the Buddha's way to flourish. So the last of the Brahma-viharas is that of equanimity. And there's a reason that it's last. I don't know how it was for you today in the practice, if it was new for you, but it can be really challenging to develop this open, even acceptance of all that comes and goes 
for us. But equanimity, the idea of it, the possibility of it, is actually what I think draws a lot of us to meditation practice. To, to, we get a sense that that's possible as we're in the conflicts and the struggles of our life. Ah, oh, equanimity, what would that be like? But I can kind of tell that in our culture, again, it's not a quality that's greatly respected. It's a little different these days, but in the early days, the idea of meditation, do you remember when they used to call it navel-gazing? <laughs> I never quite understood. That would seem very bad for your posture, but, <laughs> but there was some idea it was just empty. You know, it was a blank. They didn't understand what that depth of peace of equanimity was like. So we're getting a little closer to it in the mainstream, a little more idea. But another cartoon I've seen, there's a whole series of them that appear, especially in the New Yorker, of the robed figures in a zendo, having this little interchange. And two of them are leaning towards each other in this zendo robed figure. It's all still and quiet. And you can tell one has asked a question, and the answer from the second one is, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> you might have had that sense this week. It's a little different on the meta retreat, but whatever happens next, it's the same. All meta. But it seems appealing, doesn't it? This possibility of calm. I've always loved this stanza from the Tibetan teacher Nyosho Kempo. Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Unfortunately, where we usually are is in the neurotic thoughts and the relentless fury. (laughs) But rest in natural great peace? Doesn't that seem inviting? So equanimity is this resting. It's this natural state of balance in the mind that can hold both joy and sorrow, be with them both. But the important thing to remember about it, it's not a static fixed state. It's not like, oh, now equanimity, I've got it down. No problems from now on. Wouldn't work, because equanimity has to be responsive. It has to be in response to something, or otherwise it's, it's not true equanimity. It's, it's something false or artificial. So it's very alive. How often have you... Oh, we think we, we don't give ourselves much credit. How often have you said, oh, I couldn't bear that, when you think of someone else's situation? How could they bear that? I couldn't. And yet, what do you find? Or those people who you're thinking of, they didn't know how they could bear it. But something happens, and we do. We find the resources. Again, Ajahn Sumedho tells these amazing stories about being in Thailand in the In the 60s, he was the first Westerner to ordain in Thailand. So he was, he's about six foot tall, big American in the land of, hmm? Six two. Six two, sorry, six two. And very big in the land of, you know, very small, gentle people. Foreign culture, foreign climate, strange food, different language, trying to be a monk, robes and everything. He said it would get so bad, he would just say to himself, I can't bear this. I can't bear this anymore. Everything. Can't bear it. And then he'd take stock and see, well, I could bear it that one moment while I said that. 
<laughs> and maybe I can b bear it this moment. And he could. And it's just like that. We take it moment after moment after moment. We don't know what we're capable of until we're in that experience. And then we find the balance of mind. In the, when I left Australia in the early 80s, I went to Asia and, and lived there basically for a year and a half in India, Nepal, and did a lot of trekking. And was quite a, had a lot of adventures, but after a while, my boyfriend from Australia came and joined me. He wanted real adventures, so his idea of trekking is we would go to Pakistan and trek. You know, I'd done most of mine. In, uh, we did a long one through Zanskar and uh, up to Ladakh in the middle of nowhere, and I did a lot in Nepal. But this one was, I really didn't think it was a good idea. No one was going to Pakistan. It's not like Nepal, you know, you go from here to there and there's a guidebook. It's like, you really want, so, okay. So we get a train and a train and a train to smaller and smaller places and then a bus and a bus and land in this tiny village up in the foothills of the Himalayas. And it's a Muslim country, which, you know, being a woman, it's not so easy to navigate, but I was with Clive. It wasn't, you know, I felt we could do this together. I was a little hesitant, but we're, there we were in this little thing, little village, and he started to get sick. Well, I'd been through a lot of sickness. I mean, it didn't faze me. Maybe dysentery, giardia, hepatitis, food poisoning, in India, you know, everything. But this was different as well as the usual outflows of the body that, that were very common in, in Asia. He had blinding headaches, and he couldn't bear to see the light. He couldn't eat or drink, and, you know, it was outflows. What do you do in the way up there in the middle of nowhere? And then the owner of the hotel, which was a string of mud huts, you know, with a little wooden door and a big bolt on it, came and said, this weekend is a big festival here. All the rooms are booked. You have to leave. I said, I can't go. Look, he's lying there. He's based. I don't know what's happening. He's very, I don't care. You have to leave. There were a few Westerners in this little village, the kind of Westerners who end up in places like this in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> And a couple of them very generously said, you can come and stay in our room. They were there for a longer time. They had a room in a house. So I was very grateful. So they helped, these two men helped me move Clive. And we had to take a few trips because, you know, we had to take my stuff and his stuff. And then I had to take him and clean the room and just get all the stuff out, land in this room and still trying to figure out what to do. And after I'd been there some hours, discovered all our traveler's checks had gone. And it's like, well, was that in the hotel? Or was it these guys who were putting this up? Again, you know, I was young. I, didn't, I, I just couldn't deal with that. Let that go. No traveler's checks. Had some money. Finally got on a bus. We heard that there was a Western hospital about 200 miles away. So I just, you know, propped Clive up in a seat in one of these rickety buses. And somehow you get there. Got off at the stop, propped him up you know, went and get something, come back, prop him back on the... Got to this hospital, managed to find a hospital. It was a Christian missionary hospital. And when someone actually came out with a wheelchair, I kind of collapsed because, you know, you do it. You get there. And then they took care of him. He actually had viral meningitis. It was really serious. How could you cope with... But you do. You do what you need to do. This is equanimity. This is... Be, doing, being present for what is. 
So it doesn't mean not feeling. It doesn't mean disengaging. But actually, equanimity allows us to fully be there for the array of emotions that we might have. Actually, and then be, can, can get that appropriate response instead of reacting out of fear or negativity. And we can't be afraid of emotions. It's not about suppressing. It really is allowing them to be present, feeling them fully, and seeing them clearly. Anything else is some kind of mask or fragile, calm, some suppression. And that it's amazing the power of, of engaging in this way. There has to be this deep and profound acceptance of what's going on, of what's happening. So it's not a pushing away. I was at a committee meeting here at Spirit Rock just a couple of weeks ago. A committee that's been going on for a long time, and there's been this man on it that's been on it for a year or more. We're going to regular meetings with him. He's been a friend over the years. I don't know him that well. Been a good supporter of Spirit Rock, a great contributor to the committee. And at the end of the meeting, he said, well, I have an announcement to make. This is my last meeting. We're kind of, why? What? What's going on? He said, oh, I'm moving to Florida. Oh, why? Why? What's going on? And it turns out he's lost everything in real estate. He was in some real estate development. He lost a business. He lost his house. So having to move to Florida to move in with family and basically start again at age 60 or whatever. But he just kind of said, oh, I have now, I'm moving to Florida. And we're, our jaws are dropping. And this other man who's in the committee who knows this person better than I do just started talking about how amazingly well this first man has been dealing with this setback. Just how impressed he was that he's gone, done what he could step by step. This is what it's come to, and he's just saying, now it's this. And we're all just kind of a little bit in awe. I'm sure he's had his moments, and, I, you know, and he said that. He said, it's been really difficult. But in that space, at that time, he was just saying, this is what's happening now. It's possible for all of us, and we do do it when we need to. We find the resources when we need to. So it's learning to be comfortable in difficult situations, not afraid of them. I mean, that was a huge thing for me, and I, I'm certainly not sitting here saying I've perfected this, but just that willingness to go a little closer. As um, uh, Trungpa says, leaning into the sharp points, being willing to be there with all of the difficult emotions, fear and anger and lust, that there's a centeredness that we can develop, an openness. Not that the, you know, we're making equanimity and floating above things, that it's this elevated state, but any time we actually just turn towards something and say, yes, this is it, here we are, name something, Feel it in our bodies. Connect with it. Have that sense of allowing. Again, Ajahn Sumedho has this beautiful teaching he uses all the time. He says, it's like this. Whatever you're experiencing, it's like this. Anger is like this. Fear is like this. Lust is like this. Sleepiness is like this. I use that all the time. When, I, when I'm able to say that, oh, sleepiness is like this. It's like, like what? Oh, like this. It feels like this. Anger feels like this. And we're 
we're, we're invited to turn towards our experience and know it in this bare way that we do with mindfulness. It's this movement of energy in the body, this contraction here, this pulsing there, this heat, this energy, these thoughts. It's like this. It's just that direct. But the classic phrase of uh, equanimity practice can be challenging. Sure, Kamala introduced it this afternoon. All beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. Did any of you go, huh? I've just spent a week wishing well, and you're telling me that it doesn't have any effect? What, what was this all about? What was this for? Well, as we've said again and again, this practice isn't, as much as we give it to others wholeheartedly, it isn't about fixing them or giving them something, changing them, altering their situation. It's about purifying our own hearts and minds and growing the capacity to continue to wish well, to continue to connect, whatever the outer or inner circumstances are. So this phrase really emphasizes that. It really points us just to that. And to see this truth, this truth of unpredictability, of impermanence. We cannot control. We can't even control what happens to us, let alone controlling what happens to someone else. And to really, really see that. And we can't be responsible. This is a huge practice for parents. That's the ultimate practice for parents. All of that care and love that you give your child, and of course you want to protect them, but ultimately they have their own journey, their choices, their karma, their unfolding, to really be willing to stand in that, to really see that so clearly. But it's important that in opening to these teachings on karma, it's not about blame. It's not saying... This is a problem here. The teachings never say anything about you're getting this because you deserve it. It is about conditionality, cause and effect, but it's also about the possibility we have to be present and actually interact with that karma, especially our own karma I'm talking about more now. That when we wake up, just as we're doing here, we're changing our karmic patterns by doing this practice. Gil Fronsdale, one of the teachers here, always comes up with some great lines, and he says about karma, we're not to blame, but we're responsible. And it's just a different twist. That there is, you know, we do have, uh, that, you know, our choices have an impact, but there are many more things that also have an impact. And where we are until this moment can't change. It's gone. All we can affect all we can know, we know this moment and the choice we make and what happens next. That's the karmic unfolding that's important. It's no point to go back and go, oh no, it's because of this, or I deserve this, or they deserve that. So unhelpful. But to recognize this possibility that there is this natural unfolding, causes and conditions. We can't know all of the causes and conditions. But in this moment, we can make this wise or appropriate response. 
Sometimes it's simpler just to use the phrase, things are as they are. It's more emphasizing the acceptance part, or may I be open, balanced, and at peace, emphasizes that. But this sense of karmic unfolding, again, I think, is getting out there more in the mainstream. Another cartoon that I saw, LAPD police car, should, could be San Francisco, but it's got to be one or the other. But this one was LAPD, the cop writing someone a ticket. And he's read, basically what it seems like, he's reading the Miranda rights to this person. And the, the caption says, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Anything you, can, anything you say can and will be held against you. You are a child of the universe. And whether you understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. <laughs> Because they are, if you're getting a ticket, usually, not always, but usually, cause and response. So it's getting out there, sometimes misunderstood, because in the common parlance, it's like instant karma is going to get you. That's not what it's about. It really is seeing causes and conditions, causes and response, cause and effect and seeing what can I do in this moment that's a skillful response. Because Upeka isn't detaching from what's happening. It's not cold or unfeeling. Again, this can be a misperception of what's happening. It's got to be responsive to the experience, our experience, the experience of the other that's there. And again, I did intensive equanimity practice for for a number of days. and having, I did a retreat where I did a period of metta and then all the other Brahma Viharas for, for a number of days. And it was really interesting to feel this flow from mudita and kind of skipping around. And then the more sober quality of equanimity. But again, that coolness that was really um, refreshing in a way. But also I would feel that shift, that very subtle energy shift of either pulling back, not being able to stay present, for whatever I was with, or that going forward into attachment or fear or holding was really interesting, feeling that those subtle shifts of mind. And what I found as I did that practice was I started off saying, you are the owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon you. need to understand this. And if you could get this, then things would be better. And I was saying this over and over again, because I have done all of my uh, metta Brahma Vihara practice, not in metta or Brahma Vihara retreats. I've always been almost kind of self-retreat, so I didn't have all the helpful tips that you had. So I made a lot of mistakes. It's what I teach from was all the mistakes I made. After a while, I realized that wasn't helpful, or it wasn't even what was meant to be happening. It was me that had to understand this teaching that I couldn't control it, and that they were on their own journey. And just that shift brought such a degree of release, because I was feeling I had a job to do. You know, you need to understand this. So it's challenging to cultivate equanimity. And as I looked at this quality, and I'm someone that has a reputation for being fairly equanimous. My challenge is more cultivating metta. So it came in some ways easier for me than even the metta practice did. But still, it's difficult to really 
feel into what this true balance of mind and heart would be like. And I saw that what it needed was a degree of renunciation. And what did I need to renounce? My views and opinions. It's not the renunciation of letting go of material things or whatever. It's this sense we have of I'm right and things should be the way I want them to be. It's the, the biggest form of conflict we have and agitation we have is holding on to I know what's right. Letting go of I know how things should be. There's this beautiful sutta in the texts where the Buddha is praising this group of three monks who are living together and practicing together, and they're living harmoniously. And this is what the monks say. The monks say, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. I love that phrase, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. The Buddha says, but Anuruddha, how do you do this? Anuruddha replies, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think thus, it is a gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain an attitude in action, speech, and mind of loving kindness towards the venerable ones, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? We are different in body, but one in mind. How would it be if you'd lived your, done this whole retreat with that attitude? Blending like milk and water, putting aside our own preferences or our other relationships. This is a beautiful possibility for all of us. And very different from how society kind of conditions us. You know, you need to get yours, get ahead. Someone was joking. She said I could share this story. She was walking uh, just the last day or so to one of the Buddha statues and noticed someone was heading on the same path. And her immediate thought was, I've got to get there first and get the seat. And so she hurried a little bit and got there and then realized, this feels terrible. You know, I've beaten someone to the Buddha statue. <laughs> and felt what that felt like and gesture to the person, come sit with me. But this is what, it's such an ingrained tendency. It was a great story that she shared. To let go of this view that what we have, what we know is right. To think things should conform with our view of the world. And once we, if we're not aware of that, the views and opinions become this filter through which we view the world. And all we do is take in the information that confer- confirms our point of view. Anyone watch the 24-hour news channels? You know, it's not debate anymore. It's just ranting about views and opinions. Take any polarizing issue, and it's just this war of aggression that, 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 that is happening there. It's just amazing to see. And we think because we're having these thoughts, they're the truth with a capital T. How do we let that go? It's so hard because we feel we're right. There would be injustice involved if we were to let go of this. To really be willing to cultivate compassion, feeling with, equanimity, letting go, 
to have a sense of what the other person is feeling so that we can actually have some form of exchange that's meaningful instead of just beating heads. The Dalai Lama in this great book, The Art of Happiness, talks about how he approaches this. Whenever I meet people, I always approach them from the standpoint of the most basic things we have in common. We each have a physical structure, a mind, emotions. We are all born in the same way and we all die. All of us want happiness and don't want to suffer. Looking at others from this standpoint, rather than emphasizing secondary differences, such as the fact that I'm Tibetan or a different, excuse me, different color or religion or cultural background, allows me to have the feeling that I'm meeting someone just the same as I am. I find that relating to others on that level makes it easy, much easier to exchange and communicate with one another. Imagine if everyone on Fox News took that as a mission <laughs> before they went on board. It would just, just change things. And you probably heard all of these stories about people meeting the Dalai Lama. It was like this miracle happened where they felt seen for the first time. And we were kind of, what's he doing? What's, you know, he, it must be because he's the Dalai Lama. He says, he's just doing that. He's seeing them as they are, as they truly are, and connecting with them. And everyone comes away from meeting him feeling like they've met their best friend. It's possible for all of us, really is. And so I try, I personally try to keep this in mind. I'm not the Dalai Lama, I'll admit that. But, you know, I go to a lot of meetings with a lot of different viewpoints, especially here at Spirit Rock. A lot of difficulty sometimes. People think, oh, retreat centers, places of enlightenment, everyone's so good and skillful. I wish it was so. But what I try to come back to again and again is that everyone is doing the best they can and operating out of a sense of goodness, really operating out of wanting to do the best for Spirit Rock, even if it's different than how I would want things to do. And it's helped me enormously to stay, you know, because a lot of, you know, you put two people together, they'll disagree. It's just the way things are. And being able to just come back again and again to sensing the goodness that's there, all the different ways that it's manifesting. So it's renouncing, being right, that adrenaline of self-righteousness and anger. It doesn't mean we become, ap- we become apathetic or wishy-washy. We become ineffective in the world. I actually think we can be more effective when we can act out of this clearer, more balanced, way. It's very much like if any of you had done the council process. We often use that here at Spirit Rock where we have a talking stick and only the person who's speaking, who has a talking stick, can speak. And there are these four rules where you listen from the heart, speak from the heart, don't repeat, and be lean. It's a practice of equanimity. You can't interrupt. You can't say, no, no, that's not true. Allowing the the wisdom of the group to come forward. It's, it's such a great practice. And we've talked, I'm sure, again, Kamala talked about the near and far enemies of equanimity. The near enemy being indifference or apathy. Again, can seem very close, but it's not, it doesn't have that sense of connection. 
and to be willing to notice when equanimity moves to that place of really not caring, of not having that sense of possibility. Um, so it's, it's, it, the near enemies are really interesting places for us to keep in mind as we develop these practices. The far enemy, of course, is agitation, is any form of, of dis-ease, strong emotions of anger or passion. And it's not, again, to say that, that emotions are bad or wrong. We have them. But can we work with them skillfully so that they actually become fuel for our awakening rather than causes of suffering and struggle? Sharon Salzberg says about equanimity, Equanimity endows loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy with their sense of patience, that ability to be constant and to endure, even if the love, sympathy, and rejoicing is unreturned, even through all of the ups and downs. The other Brahma-viharas owe their boundless nature to equanimity, that ability to embrace all beings impartially. So it really is there weaving in and out of all of the other Brahma-viharas. So we can practice equanimity formally as we did here, and I, I think it's a really helpful practice. Like all of the Brahma-viharas, there are layers and depths that we can go through, experience as we do it in this formal way, turning our mind back and back, again and again to this, this uh, wisdom of equanimity. But it's important not to make it just that, oh, I need to sit still and find my equanimity. That's not going to be helpful for us in our life if we need to, you know, before we can have an equanimous thought. It's really about can we take back into our lives a willingness to renounce the views and opinions, to find the balance. It can be there in a moment. In this perspective, I started in my first talk about talking about that view the astronauts had of the planet Earth hanging there and what a different perspective that brings. That's what retreats do for us, bring that different perspective. We can do that in a moment by taking a breath, by feeling some empathy, by knowing what's happening and connecting with it in, in this very direct, immediate way. Using the breath using the body, these very simple tools, finding ways that we can access this balanced, quiet mind in times when we're not being challenged. You know, someone after a retreat said it was such a, just a simple thing like not turning the radio on every time they got in the car and just using that time to find some peace and quiet, being out in nature, whatever it is, so that we know what it's like for the mind to be at rest, And then that is a resource or a refuge when we go back in to those places of difficulty. And when equanimity is there, really noticing it. What is it like to have the mind be in balance? When there is a curiosity and an openness to the changing experience, not holding on, not pushing away. So we get to know that very deeply and intimately for ourselves and to see the happiness that's there. Once we've tasted the happiness of equanimity, the allure of passion, of lust, of, of, of the wanting, or even the, the pleasantness that there can be in aversion or, or anger, 
lose their allure. I often think of equanimity, it's kind of like looking back to your teenage years. You know, and all of the emotion and the drama and everything. And it doesn't matter how far you are away from them, when you look back, do you want to be back there? (laughs) For most of us, it's like, not again. That's what equanimity feels like. It also, to me, is is like um, you're out in a terrible storm. You know, the wind is raging and the rain is horizontal and you're coming home from work, whether you're driving or public transit or whatever, and, you know, it's just being buffeted, 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 and you get out of the car or the bus and your umbrella turns inside out. There's just this feeling of, you know, being really caught in the storm, and then finally you make it to your front door, open, close, and you're home. And there's that sense of, and it's safe, and it's warm, and it's comfortable, and you can be at ease. That's equanimity. I often also think of the people I know who exemplify this. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, one of the most equanimous people that I know. Just really a gracious, kind equanimity, always manifesting. So I have my little phrase, WWJD, what would Joseph do? What would Joseph do? He's a great example. I just actually traveled, was for a week with him on holiday, and it was amazing to see just his steadiness of kindness and openness and equanimity. So we look. We see outside it reflected, the possibility in nature and other people, and we come to know this place for ourselves, this place of quiet, of rest, of peace, and know it as our true refuge, the Charter spoke about the other night, that it's possible, that it's accessible. And it's one of the highest forms of happiness. So let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.